If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. For today's podcast, I spoke to the author Harry Potter about his book Shades of the Prison House, which examines the development of the British penal system. As well as being an author, Harry is a practising criminal defence barrister and formerly served as a prison chaplain at Wormwood Scrubs. We met at his offices in London to discuss the history of incarceration in Britain. So when did what we would recognise as the prison system first emerge in Britain? Uh, Well, there was no prison system in, in Britain really until the late 18th, early 19th century, because there was no need for one. There was a, a vast plethora of uh, different establishments that were used for cursorial purposes, somewhat purpose-built prisons. Many were just town lock-ups, which could actually be a room in a pub um, or a dungeon in a castle or even a cell in a monastery, which, of course, is where we get the term cell from. There came a time when more and more offences were actually attracting penalties uh, or the punishment of being in prison as opposed to the norm where punishment Prison was a place where you kept people until they were tried and then executed, transported, flogged, put in the pillory, fined, or whatever it was. But with the decline of capital punishment and the problems with transportation, prisons were now being seen as places where people would be sent in lieu of other punishments. Uh, And that's when, of course, they began to think about the purpose of prison rather than purely its functional role. The actual prison system as we know it now uh, didn't begin until um, the 1870s, when all the local prisons were nationalised and brought under central central government control. And that's when you act, that's the first time when you actually get what we properly call a prison system. You mentioned there in the 18th century the emergence of thinking about what the prison system should be doing and its purposes. What were the kind of dominant strands in that discussion or debate? Uh, Well, the dominant strands were really whether it should be purely a place of um, punishment and deterrence, deterrence being a very important factor in any criminal justice system. Um, or whether it should actually uh, be a place in which uh, you could do something to amend the ways of the miscreants who were sent there. Now, it, it was a time when a lot of people were thinking about it, from atheist philosophers like Jeremy Bentham to Christian evangelicals, and in particular Quakers, not just in this country, but particularly in America as well, where they began to think... Uh, people like Elizabeth Fry, she and others of her ilk, uh, who knew quite a lot about prisons, and John Howard, who wasn't a Quaker, he was a dissenter, um, and he travelled the country and most of Europe visiting prisons. So on the one hand, they were all saying, 
the prison system or the prisons we have at present are pretty appalling. Um, they're exploitative, they're dirty, they're dangerous, and they are harbingers of crime, universities of crime. But they also, they also thought, here is a possibility that we can do something with prisoners. And there were two main themes. There was the, um, what was called the separate system, uh, which gave rise eventually to Pentonville. Um, and the separate system was where you kept prisoners in individual cells. Previously, they'd just been all stacking together, often 100 people in a room. Now they got individual cells, but the separate system required them to be completely out of contact with any other prisoners to avoid the great fear of contamination, um, which was, which still is with Islamic um, fundamentalism in prisons as now. It hasn't gone away. So these people were kept completely isolated when they were um, being taken from one area to another, which was primarily being taken to chapel. They wore masks so that they couldn't see each other. They couldn't identify each other. Prison officers wore slippers so that they wouldn't make a sound when they were walking down the wings. The theories behind this were, were coming into play in, from the late 18th century and the early 19th century. Although, for instance, Elizabeth Fry was very sensible about it. She said people should have a safe place to be at night where they could be on their own they could have time to reflect, read, and so on. But she didn't want them to be deprived of all human contact. We thought that was inhumane. But there were more purists, not primarily Quakers, uh, but evangelical Christians, who thought that complete separation and complete isolation were the only ways to um, com completely reform someone. So that they would go into prison uh, confronted with their own guilt and remorse, to having no recourse to anything other than perhaps speaking to the chaplain, uh, they would then um, change their ways and go made anew. In fact, many went mad as a result. But there was another system which was a modified version, and that was called the silent system. Both of these were first in operation in America, and British people were constantly going to America to see how they were performed. The silence system was that you maintain silence at all times, but you worked in association. Um, they were actually much more punitive because that was when you had the treadwheel and the crank and other devices which had no practical purpose whatsoever. Uh, treadwheels, except in very few occasions, didn't actually do anything other than go round and wear you out. So you climbed a mountain every day. The government all of a sudden took a major role in this, which is why a lot of money could be put into it. So first of all, they built Millbank, um, which is where the Tate Gallery now stands. Uh, and Millbank cost the astronomical sum of half a million pounds uh, at the beginning of the 19th century. It was the most expensive public building ever built. And it was a total disaster, partially because it was built in marshland, so it kept flooding, uh, partially because it was very badly designed. Uh, one of the warders used to have to take a, a, a reel of um, string with him, which he laid out as he walked down the corridors, which were miles long, so he could find his way back. 
and the governor had a map of the prison in his, in his office. The government then decided they'd try again, and that's where you get Pentonville, which was called the model prison. And this was purpose-built with, as I say, individual cells, integral sanitation, good quality food, but absolute isolation. I just want to pick up on your point um, earlier about Bentham. Could you outline his vision for the future of prisons and also talk a bit about why it was never adopted? His idea was to create what he called a panopticon, an all-seeing building, um, so that the, the level of punish, actual punishment would be much less than the, um, the theory it looked as though people would be suffering. In fact, they weren't. So he designed this model down to uh, the exact dimensions of the cells, the complete layout of the prison, how by smoke and mirrors, people could think things were going on that weren't actually going on. There were ritual displays within the prison. It was all very weird. I mean, Bentham was very weird in many respects. But it did strike a nerve, and people thought, this is an interesting idea. And initially, politicians were quite keen on it. But it was going to be very expensive. Some of the land he wanted, the Duke of Richmond wouldn't sell for him. Um, and uh, ultimately, it was really because he was so prescriptive and so demanding that people got bit put off and they thought there must be better ways of doing this. But although his ideas were never implemented in full, they did influence such things as, as Millbank and Pentonville. But his criticism of both of them, that he died before Pentonville was built, um, would be that they did not conform to his blueprint and his blueprint had to be fulfilled exactly for it all to work. And of course, we never We'll never know whether it would because it was actually never built. The topic of expense has already come up a couple of times. What have some of the biggest obstacles established new prisons have faced over the centuries? Uh, well, to begin with, there wasn't a great deal of problem because they were all private enterprises and they were run for a profit. And you actually paid for the keepership of uh, such an establishment. And you made your money by charging the prisoners. So they were charged an entry fee, they were charged an exit fee, they were, you had, a, you had a, what was called the tap, which sold liquor, amongst other things, which caused a bit of consternation amongst some reformers. Sounds more like a hotel than a prison. Uh, well, it was a fairly, fairly bog standard hotel, but as with all those things, it was really, there was, there was first class, there was second class, and there were very much third class, depending on your, uh, depending on how much money you had to spend you could actually live quite well. I mean, in Newgate, if you have the money, uh, you would get your own cell, you could have your friends coming in to visit you, you would be able to um, have food brought in, uh, but you would primarily be expected to pay for everything from the bed to um, any, anything you bought in the shop, for instance, uh, and they would charge your visitors money to come in as well. So you could make a lot of money out of prison. So initially, there wasn't any problem. Um, the, the two really expensive ones that came along um, were, the, were the national ones, Millbank and Pentonville. 
But because the government was so determined to find purse strings, because they would be merely paying for it uh, out of the rates and so on, they also were um, enthused uh, by the evangelical fervor or the example of the Quakers, for instance, about actually doing something. They would be proud of it. So they will then became quite prepared um, to spend a lot of money. When Reading Prison was built, for instance, it was considered the finest building in Berkshire. With all of these reforms um, that we've spoken about, was the story of Britain's prison service one of ever-increasing improvement or was progress a lot more patchy? The period from the 16th century until now, Britain on many occasions and in many different ways um, were at the forefront of prison reform and were extreme and, and things that happened in this country were, were completely innovative from Bridewell in the middle of the 16th century, which was Henry VIII's old palace, which was turned into um, effectively a reformatory. It was a place of punishment, but, but, but it was also a place of um, reformation and refuge for fallen women, as they call them, prostitutes, um, idle apprentices, uh, vagabonds, the undeserving poor. They would all be put in there, but they were actually, I mean, they were whipped from time to time, but conditions weren't too bad and they were encouraged to learn trades and work. And that was one of the first, I mean, imperfect as it was, that was one of the first times that had ever happened. Similarly, in the, um, as, as time went on, um, not only did we experiment with things like Millbank and Pentonville, but at the beginning of the 19th century, Samuel Took in Yorkshire, a Quaker, uh, developed the most progressive means of uh, dealing with uh, the insane, who had previously just been effectively incarcerated. Um, uh, and he, he developed a whole model of treating them like friends, getting them to interact with animals, planting flowers and vegetables, all very different from what had gone on before. But even with places like um, Bethlehem, I mean, or Bedlam, as it was called, it's the oldest extant psychiatric hospital in the world. And again, imperfect as it was, they were actually trying to do something good for lunatics, as they called them. Um, um, but, but later on, um, particularly in the, the 20th century, uh, we developed the Borstal system, which again was considered it was, it was considered in its day the greatest innovation in, in prison reform ever. We also had experiments like the Berlinese Special Unit in Glasgow, which took the worst of the worst, the most dangerous people in, in Scotland, and tried to turn them around through arts and crafts. And it was a marvellous success until it was killed off 20 years later. We have a tendency in this country to strike success and then kill it. Why do you think that is? Oh, well, it's, it's almost entirely because um, uh, of political failure and fear. Politicians are risk-averse, particularly at the beginning of the 20th century until the 50s. Um, in this country, uh, prisons were effectively allowed to get on with it on their own, and risk could be taken, and they got a lot of mavericks into the prison system. 
who were deeply committed to it. They weren't worried about money. They weren't worried about hours. They weren't worried about conditions. They were worried about transforming lives. The, the leader of them, Alexander Patterson, once was phoned up by a rather worried governor at Pentonville. Um, he was phoned up because Alex Patterson was one of the prison commissioners. And the governor had managed to lose two of his prisoners. They'd escaped. So he rather nervously phoned up. And the response was, oh dear, what a pity. Now he'd be sacked. That's the difference. Uh, you didn't sack people when things went wrong. You sacked them if they weren't doing interesting things. So you encouraged innovation. Um, Berlini was another classic example of that because it was an astonishingly successful experiment. Um, Jimmy Boyle, the artist and uh, sculptor and writer, um, uh, was considered Scotland's most dangerous prisoner. Well, he learned to become a fine sculptor and a fine writer um, and playwright while he was in the Berlini Special Unit. And he's been out for many years. But that appalled people. We're, we're taking people at that. We're giving them arts and crafts. We're giving them better conditions than they might have had, than they might have had outside or law-abiding people might have had. So there's this pampering of prisons and another thing governments are always frightened about. I think that raises an interesting point, which is about um, how public perceptions of criminality and of what the law system should and law and order system should be doing. How much have penal policies been shaped by public outcry? Or... Predominantly in the last uh, 50, 60 years. Uh, but to a certain extent before that, there was a public perception that um, those who were trying to um, do good within prison or to reform prisoners were treating them too well. Uh, and that certainly had an impact on the rather, um, well, extremely regressive and entirely punitive system we had for the second half of the, the 19th century. But it's been predominantly in the last 60 years. They don't like good news stories in terms of prisons. They like, they like bad, bad news stories. Um, and since the government primarily took over the running of the prisons after 1963 in particular, which was when the prison commission was abolished, uh, because the Home Office thought the prison system's an easy thing to handle. Everything's going hunky-dory. We've got one of the lowest prison populations in the world. We've been closing prisons for years. Borstals are thriving. We may have hit um, the golden goose in terms of penal reform. They then took it over just as it exploded in their faces. And of course, most home secretaries have had a tough time because of prisons. But of course, once politicians were actively in control of the prisons, the buck stopped with them. They don't want the sun to have a story about prisoners being pampered. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Conditions were bad. There were riots, protests, often broken up quite brutally. And so riots or even dissent within prisons met ever-increasing uh, draconian measures, which, of course, just gave rise to more and more. It was, a, it was really a vicious circle. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. 
Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Um, we spoke a bit earlier about initiatives that you thought had been particularly successful. And one you mentioned was Borstals, um, which you speak about a lot in the book. Why do you think that that was an initiative with real potential? And also, why do you think that the system ultimately failed? Well, the system lasted for just over 80 years. So it lasted quite a long time. Um, it, it, it began very successfully because it was something completely new and because people were very concerned uh, about the treatment of young people in prisons. This was an attempt that if you're going to send young people to prison at all, and the number should be restricted, those who go there, um, rather than becoming the future, the criminals of the future, being contaminated by the adults, they would be in separate institutions and you would try and nip it in the bud by giving them training, um, giving them work experience, uh, giving them a degree of education which they, they wouldn't have. Now, it, it grew slowly at first, but it was successful. Um, and then along came Alexander Patterson in 1922. And Alexander Patterson was one of those extraordinary individuals, a man of an enormous charisma, uh, complete self-confidence, and with strong connections. This was a man who walked in uh, powerful circles, but also had an enormous amount of experience of working with working-class um, kids because he had spent 21 years living in a slum in Bermondsey. Um, and he wrote a book about it, uh, which became a bestseller. Uh, and then he was plucked in 1922. He was appointed one of the prison commissioners. It was with responsibility for Borstals. For the next um, 25 years, he was the dominant influence in penal reform in this country, not only improving conditions for uh, prisons in general. I mean, he was entirely backed by all the other prison commissioners and by a succession of home secretaries. So it was a fortunate time for him to be operating. But he had this vision of uh, uh, making Borstal's entirely non-punitive, so that the aim was to set up um, more open Borstal's and far fewer closed Borstal's. Closed Borstal's had, had walls and gates, open Borstal's didn't. It relied on trust. Now, kids in those days were certainly more deferential. There was a more a deferential culture in general. And, and some of his ideas may seem sort of patronizing to, to us. It, it, in short, he wanted almost to give a public school education to working class kids. Um, they, he set up a house system with house masters. Prison officers didn't wear prison uh, uniforms anymore. They wore the Boston blue tie uh, and they wore um, civilian clothing. Um, the boys who were there, they were effectively put on trust. 
And they were asked, they said, we will treat you very well if you treat, we'll treat you with respect if you treat the staff with respect. We'll give you all this provision, but you're on your word not to break it. And if you do, it's only going to have an adverse effect on others because there'll be, you know, if you go into a farmer's field and kill his sheep, everyone's going to suffer and you're not going to be terribly popular. Bizarrely, it worked. I mean, it did seem to be a considerable success for a long period. I mean, the most dramatic example, and which is really unheard of now, when Brendan Behan, the future Irish playwright, um, then uh, an, an IRA um, activist at the age of 16, came over to Liverpool in at the beginning of the Second World War, while we were fighting the Germans, in order to blow up the docks. But he was discovered before he managed to do that. Uh, I mean, now he would get life sentence with a minimum 40-year tariff or something like that. He got three years in an open hostel. So he was sent to Holiday Bay, um, often referred to as Holiday Bay by the Carpers, um, where he didn't escape. He seemed to get on quite well. He wrote a book about it, and it changed his attitude towards the English. Um, but the way in which we are now so punitive and the way in which then they were so indulgent uh, was, was quite remarkable. But it did, it, it was of its time, it was with specific individuals because these individuals, many of whom were Christian, but not all, but they had a tremendous commitment to it. So you got these really idealistic um, primarily young men, but also but also some women as well. Aylesbury Boston was run by women governors who were just as effective and just as extraordinary. Um, but they 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 came. It was their life work. It was a vocation. It wasn't a job. Whereas the First World War had retarded the development of Boston to a small extent, but they really broke out after that. The Second World War did much more damage. A lot of the bosses, of course, were emptied. They were either turned into prisoner war camps. Um, and of course, the Boston boys were sent to fight. Uh, and a lot of the staff were killed. And so the very people who had been responsible for developing this extraordinary system uh, were eradicated. And Alexander Patterson, although he tried to put things together after the war, he died in 1947. Had he lived longer, things might have improved. Nonetheless, Bostels continued for another 30 years, until 1983. Um, but they took in more and more people. Some of the people were less suitable. Of course, kids were less deferential than they had been. So certainly things were declining, which ultimately led to their extinction. But I don't think it was inevitable. And I think a lot of the lessons that have been learned from them about how you treat people and how human interaction is the most important thing. Um, the, these are lessons we, we mustn't and, and, and should not forget. As well as people reforming from outside, there's been more violent um, attempts at reform or change um, from inside in terms of prison riots. What were some of the most notable prison riots in British history? There was the Chatham riot in um, the 1880s. This was under the Duquesne regime, which was the most severe of all, where prisoners uh, had 
a relentless uh, day of toil and starvation diet. Uh, and a big riot broke out then. Uh, it didn't, of course, lead to anything. The, the, the troops were brought in. They had to use the military to, to crush that one. Um, the next big one was 1932 in Dartmoor. Uh, and this was feared that it would um, um, adversely affect prison reform because a lot of people said it's because you're relaxing the reins and because you're giving more and more um, autonomy to the prisoners. They badly damaged the prison and injured several prison officers, although several of the prisoners were injured as well. But um, a report into it rather exonerated the prison service of this, and they, they blamed things like London gangster culture and the fact that the isolation, of, that there were other reasons for, the, for now whether that was true or not, but it, it sort of blew over and it didn't put reform off its course. Almost all the others have been in the period from 1963 until now. I mean, perhaps the most famous is the, um, is the Manchester Strangeways riot, about which, after which Lord Justice Wolfe wrote the, the Wolfe Report, which was one of the biggest uh, and thorough investigations into prison and ideas for reform of prisons. Um, than they'd had in, in 100 years. Um, they broke out, not just in Manchester Strangeways, but in a number of other prisons, and not just in that year. I mean, there had been dirty protests in prisons. There had been uh, minor riots in prisons, prisons like Gartree, Wormwood Scrubs, and so on. Um, it was largely because uh, more and more people were being crammed into increasingly decrepit Victorian buildings. The, the classic thing of um, underfunding, um, putting more money into security and less money into other things, because security became the great god after, after the 1960s. The important thing is prisoners should not escape, not frighten the public. Um, whereas before then, escaping had not been considered such a terrible thing. Um, you got increasing militancy amongst prisoners, and militancy amongst prison officers, because prison officers operated an entirely closed shop, and they were very protective of their own, own rights and privileges. And prisons were often run for the convenience of the staff, not of the convenience of, of the prisoners or the governor. Um, so you, you had this period from, from the 60s, 70s, and 80s, where uh, conditions were bad. Uh, there were riots, protests, some violent protests, some just sit-down protests, often broken up quite brutally. Um, the government introduced special teams like the Mufti squad who were heavily armed and armoured, who would be who would go into prison and break up a, a riot and break bones in, the, in, 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 in so doing. Um, and so um, riots or disturbances or even um, dissent within prisons met ever-increasing uh, draconian measures, which of course just gave rise to more and more. It was, a, it was really a vicious circle. What do you think that we can learn um, today from looking at the history of the British prison system? Um, the main thing is to keep numbers down, 
have a highly motivated staff, encourage innovation, uh, encourage experimentation, back the prison staff against what the public may be saying through the news, or at least the newspapers may be saying, or the media may be saying, but, you know, take risks. It's, it's a difficult thing to achieve. We had it once. It's not impossible. That was Harry Potter. His book, Shades of the Prison House, is out now, published by Boydell and Brewer. If you're looking for more history content, the September issue of BBC History magazine goes on sale today, with features on The Princes in the Tower, The Nazi Invasion of Poland, The Real Peaky Blinders and Magellan's Voyage Around the World. That's all for today's podcast, which was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in next on Saturday for a special bonus episode with the former Prime Minister Gordon Brown. Listener.